Good evening, my friends. Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Corbett Report Radio. You are tuned into Republic Broadcasting right here on KHFX 1140 AM in Dallas-Fort Worth and broadcasting around the world live on republicbroadcasting.org. So once again, wherever you might be in the world tonight, thank you for tuning in. I am your host and will be so for the next one hour. My name is James Corbett, and my work and other writings and podcasts and other work that I've done in the past five years can be found at CorbettReport.com, where there are hundreds and hundreds of hours of media there for your downloading, perusal, and pleasure completely commercial-free and provided free to the public thanks to the generosity of all of the subscribers who pay as little as 100 Japanese yen a month to keep the Corporate Report going. And of course, all of you who have purchased Corbett Report DVDs, including my 2009 video archive, my 2010 video archive, and the Data DVD Volume 1, which represents every single podcast episode, article, interview, and video that I created in 2007 and 2008. So once again, to all of you who have supported me in that way, thank you so much. I could not do this without you. And tonight we are here on the Friday night edition of this broadcast, and we will be dipping into those archives at CorbettReport.com. Once again, a vast repository of information on a vast range of subjects, so I hope that you are making use of the resource that is the internet while we have it, and you have uh, somewhat free and somewhat available access to information at the tip of your fingers. It's a remarkable world we're living in. Let's make the most of it. So tonight we're going to be dipping into the archives to go over some of the work that I've done in the past on the topic of Fukushima, and specifically the Fukushima cover-up, which is very much part of the problem. In fact, it goes to the very heart of the problem of what Fukushima really represents. And to anyone who has been following my work, you know that I have a website, FukushimaUpdate.com, which has not been being updated very much recently as I have a lot on my plate at the moment now, writing the Saturday editorials for the International Forecaster, in addition to all the videos and articles and interviews and things that I'm doing. So I hope you will bear with me during this uh, period of relative inactivity on that website. But in the archives there, you will find lots and lots and lots of stories related to what's happening at Fukushima. And tonight we're going to be picking up, well, from the conversation that was spurred earlier this week with Professor Tony Hall, Professor of Globalization Studies at the University of Lethbridge in my home and native land of Alberta, Canada. And we referred to his very in-depth, very interesting article that he wrote in the immediate wake of the nuclear meltdown at Fukushima Daiichi in Japan's northeast. It was an article called From Hiroshima to Fukushima, 1945 to 2011. It's available at veteranstoday.com. And of course, I'll put the link in the show notes for tonight's episode. And uh, I do suggest you go and take a look at it. He gets into some of the big history behind, well, behind the uh, the entire nuclear industry, where it really came from, and the types of propaganda that were being used to promote it. And he gets uh, specifically into some very fascinating and oft-overlooked information about the Mark I boiling water reactor, which is the exact type of nuclear reactor that is being used at Fukushima. Some fascinating information there, including this from that article, quote, The Mark I prototype took shape at a military laboratory in Idaho in the early 1950s, where the world's initial nuclear power plant was assembled, tested, and modified in an artificial lake and in the hull of a submarine designed especially for this top-secret project. Hyman G. Rickover led the team of technological innovators commissioned by the U.S. Armed Forces and the Atomic Energy Commission. As the project went from success to success, this naval officer and electrical engineer was promoted up the ranks to become an admiral. Admiral Rickover was to play a major role in pioneering all design, manufacturing, and training facets of the use of nuclear power for the generation of electricity not only on military vessels 
but in land-based power plants as well. And we'll end the quote there, but tons of very interesting information and history about where this uh, program came from, how it developed, and how it was promoted, once again, by the military, for military purposes, before it was sold to the public, literally as a way to pay for the, uh, the penance of the leftovers of the nuclear weapons production industry. But on that note, we will be coming back after this break to go over the secrets of Fukushima and the Fukushima cover-up, so stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. Welcome back, friends, to this Friday night edition of Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're going through the archives to take a look at some of my previous work on the question of the Fukushima cover-ups. And I use that uh, plural advisedly. I think there have been a number of cover-ups that have taken place since the initial meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant here in Japan. And uh, and not just one or two. There's been a lot of different pieces of this puzzle that have been covered up, not least of which the fact that the power plant itself, that, that three of the reactors did go into full meltdown within hours of the uh, the event actually happening and that it was known about in the very least within days of it happening the public was not told about that for three months so there has definitely been a concerted effort from the very beginning to keep vital information away from the people of japan and thus the people of the world in order to stop them from panicking and well, actually using this information to make educated and informed decisions about what kinds of risks they wanted to put their families through and uh, and that has to show, at the very least, even for the people who still are gung-ho about nuclear power and how it's the answer to everything and, oh, nothing bad is going to happen from this crisis, at the very least, the cover-up and the cover-ups that have taken place about what really happened there has to get people wondering and have to get people questioning about what they're being told about what is still going on there even today. So we will be going through uh, various work that I've done over the past year, and we're going to start with a report that I did back in July of 2011. Of course, in pretty much the immediate wake of the initial Fukushima meltdowns, and this was just a few months after the, the earthquake and tsunami hit Fukushima Daiichi, and at that time, there was a lot in the news, not just about Fukushima, but also about various radiation-related news taking place in the United States, including some very serious disasters that were taking place at multiple locations in the United States, including the Los Alamos National Laboratory, which was uh, being engulfed by a basically a raging inferno at the time, and that the secure containment facility storing 20,000 barrels of nuclear waste was being carefully guarded by a fabric-type building that would uh, quickly be consumed by the fires if they did come in the vicinity. And there was also some things going on at Fort Calhoun Nuclear Station, and even some radiation-related news related to the TSA. All of this is covered up, uh, it was attempted to be covered up, but was reported on by myself at, on a Sunday Update episode back in July of 2011, my weekly news update. So let's listen to the July 2011 Sunday Update. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome. This is James Corbett of The Corbett Report with your Sunday update from the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca on this third day of July 2011. And now for the real news. A series of disasters, potential disasters, bad news, and worrying studies over the course of the past week have brought public attention back to the issue of radiation and its attendant health risks, and further exposed how governmental agencies that are supposed to protect the public have in fact knowingly put the public at risk and even colluded with the very industries they are supposed to be regulating. Last Sunday, a wildfire started in New Mexico that grew to a 162-square-mile inferno and came within 50 feet of the grounds of the Los Alamos National Laboratory that was the birthplace of the atomic bomb. The site is an historical testing ground for nuclear weapons and a storage area for about 20,000 barrels of nuclear waste. The disaster exposed the remarkable fact that this nuclear waste was stored not in a secure containment facility or even in a solid building, but in a fabric-type building that would be quickly consumed by the fires. In addition to the risk of the nuclear waste burning up in the fire and sending radioactive materials into the atmosphere, Joni Arends of the Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety has pointed out that the fire could stir up the nuclear-contaminated soil on lab property where nuclear experiments have long been conducted. In either event, harmful radiation could pass into the jet stream to be distributed across the United States and beyond. As a recent report from the Alliance for Nuclear Accountability documented, the site has been the disposal ground for some 18 million cubic feet of radioactive and chemical solid wastes since 1943, as well as 899,000 curies of so-called transuranic waste, including plutonium. Liquid wastes from the plant were discharged into the canyons, initially with little treatment whatsoever. Winds have now shifted the fire away from the facility, and initial air samples from the inferno have indicated there has been so far no catastrophic release of radiation in the area, but it is unclear why no basic precautions were in place to secure the nuclear waste at the facility prior to the fire, or what such measures, if any, are being contemplated in the wake of this emergency. Also last Sunday, floodwaters from the Missouri River reached the containment buildings of the Fort Calhoun Nuclear Station. A levee protecting the site's electrical transformers gave way, and the plant was forced to switch on emergency generators in order to continue cooling the nuclear reactor. Although officials are maintaining that the plant is still functioning and is not in meltdown, the incident has raised serious questions about the facility and its preparedness for just such an event. Just last October, nuclear regulators warned that the Fort Calhoun plant failed to maintain procedures for combating a significant flood, and newly released documents reveal workers were still scrambling to plug holes where flood water could potentially get into the facility as late as last week. It is unclear what, if any, punitive actions the plant's operator will face for their negligence, or if the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is even concerned. Commission Director Gregory Jasko said last week that all the plants in the U.S. have been designed to deal with historically the largest possible floods, seeming to imply that the Fort Calhoun situation was not dangerous by definition, and that the NRC had full faith in the plant, despite its documented safety violations. This is in line with an AP investigation last month that found that American federal nuclear regulators have been working with the nuclear industry to ensure that reactors passed safety inspections by repeatedly lowering safety standards for the plants or failing to enforce existing standards. The investigation showed that a myriad of documented problems at nuclear power plants across the country, from failed cables and busted seals to broken nozzles, dented containers, and rusty pipes, were routinely resolved by claiming that existing safety standards were too conservative. 
When valves were found to be leaking, for instance, the standards were simply changed to allow for more leakage, in some cases 20 times the original limit. Meanwhile in Japan, where three of the reactors at the troubled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant have been confirmed to have been in full meltdown since the very first days of the tsunami-induced disaster, the first series of health checks of area residents are already revealing surprising and troubling results about radiation exposure in the area. Tests of 15 Fukushima residents between the ages of 4 and 77 have revealed radioactive cesium and iodine in their urine. The researchers include doctors who have provided medical care to atomic bomb survivors. The group conducted analysis on the food and urine of 15 residents in Itate village in Kawamata town in Fukushima prefecture. These areas are about 40 kilometers from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. They estimate that residents have been internally exposed to up to 3.2 millisieverts in the two months since the Fukushima accident. Radioactive substances accumulate much more by eating or drinking rather than inhaling. I advise people to refrain from eating vegetables grown in the area where high levels of radiation are detected. The tests also indicate that residents have been exposed to between one-fifth to three-quarters of their yearly allowable radiation dose in just two months. Now, documents are beginning to surface confirming what many have been alleging since the start of this crisis, that governments the world over have been conspiring with the nuclear energy industry to downplay the significance and ramifications of the Fukushima disaster. Just last week, emails released under the Freedom of Information Act show how the departments of business and energy in the UK government were coordinating their response to the Japanese disaster with companies like EDF Energy, Areva, and Westinghouse, to ensure the accident did not interfere with plans to build a new generation of nuclear power plants in Britain. The emails reveal how the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills was emailing the nuclear firms on the 13th of March as the crisis was still unfolding to assure them that radiation released has been controlled, the reactor has been protected. A surprisingly definitive description of the events at Fukushima that have now been shown to have been categorically wrong, as Reactor 1 had in fact melted down in the first 16 hours of the disaster, with 2 and 3 also melting down in the following days. The emails also show how the BIS intimated that comments from the nuclear industry would be worked into the department's briefs to ministers and government statements. We need to all be working from the same material to get the message through to the media and the public. In other radiation-related news, an entirely different set of emails among government officials obtained under the Freedom of Information Act last week revealed that the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the very same organization that has refused to release the data that its model for the collapse of World Trade Center 7 was based on because it would jeopardize public safety, has accused the Department of Homeland Security of lying about its findings on the safety of the full-body scanners being used in airport screenings by the TSA. The email reveals how NIST rebuked DHS head Janet Napolitano for claiming in a USA Today op-ed that AIT machines are safe, efficient, and protect passenger privacy. They have been independently evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, who have all affirmed their safety. According to the email, however, NIST was angry at this mischaracterization of their work, pointing out that NIST does not do product testing, and NIST did not test AIT machines for safety. 
As it turns out, not only did Napolitano lie about NIST's certification of the scanner safety, but she also lied about the Johns Hopkins backing of her position. An internal document produced by Johns Hopkins for the DHS shows that far from affirming the safety of the technology, the university in fact warned that the scanners as designed produces an area around the machine that exceeds the general public dose limit for radiation exposure. Napolitano's op-ed was widely criticized at the time because Dr. Michael Love, the head of an x-ray lab at Johns Hopkins, warned just two days before the op-ed was published that, statistically, someone is going to get skin cancer from these x-rays. For more on this story and other breaking news and current events, please go to globalresearch.ca. For more research and analysis by James Corbett, please go to corbettreport.com. Welcome back to the program, friends. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. And tonight we've been going over and we uh, continue to go through the archives of CorbettReport.com for some of my previous work on the Fukushima cover-ups. So let's turn to a report that was issued in October of last year in the wake of a startling revelation by the former Prime Minister of Japan, who was the current Prime Minister at the time of the Fukushima meltdowns, and that was Naoto Kan. And during his time as uh, as Prime Minister, he had to deal with some very serious uh, crises and problems related to Fukushima, obviously. And not surprisingly, as is the want of the Japanese electorate, he was out of his position within, within months of having assumed office. Uh, other than Junichiro Koizumi, there is no real uh, Prime Minister in recent times here in Japan who has lasted more than a year or two at his post. And... Uh, and that seems to be just the the way that the Japanese electoral system w- really works here. But uh, but Naoto Kan was in and out quite quickly as the stress of the position obviously got to him. And in the wake of the revelations that came out in October of last year about what types of decisions he was making, it's really no wonder because not many people in the world would really be cut out to lie to the people of their country in such a brazen fashion and put so many people at risk as Naoto Kan and his uh, his government ultimately did in the wake of their decisions regarding this disaster. And uh, and once again, this goes back to the fundamental underlying cover-up that they knew that there was a meltdown within hours, if not days, within it, with, uh, within it actually happening, but they withheld that information from the public. That's extremely important information, and a lot of very, very important decisions could have, should have, would have been made by many people if they had known the full extent of what was happening at Fukushima. So let's listen to a GRTV behind the headlines news segment that I did in October of 2011 about Japanese government insiders revealing Fukushima secrets, and perhaps the biggest secret being that the Japanese government was considering the evacuation of Tokyo, and truth be told, still is, in the event of a worst-case scenario at Fukushima. Japanese government insiders reveal Fukushima secrets. This is Behind the Headlines on Global Research TV at grtv.ca. The former Prime Minister of Japan has revealed that scientific advisors to the Japanese government warned that evacuations of as many as 30 million people up to 250 kilometers away from Fukushima would have to take place in the event of a worst-case scenario at the stricken nuclear plant in the country's northeast. 
The proposal would have seen Tokyo itself subject to evacuation, but the idea was immediately rejected because of the chaos it would have caused. The revelations come as Naoto Kan, who stepped down as Prime Minister last month, finally opened up about the deliberations that took place in the wake of Japan's nuclear disaster. In a tense interview with Kyoto News, Khan admitted that the proposal to evacuate Tokyo was a crucial moment when I wasn't sure whether Japan could continue to function as a state. Just last week, another government insider, Kenichi Matsumoto, confirmed the plans for Tokyo's evacuation and other details of the government's response to the crisis to Radio Australia. In the interview, Matsumoto, former advisor to Prime Minister Khan, revealed that TEPCO not only hid information from the government, but that in the wake of the disaster, they suggested abandoning the plant altogether. First, TEPCO did not convey accurate information about the accident to the Prime Minister. It tried to make the disaster look small. Then TEPCO's headquarters wanted to evacuate the nuclear plant, but the chief of the facility vowed not to leave. So Prime Minister Khan was outraged because he wasn't getting proper information or the truth. Earlier this year, Toshiso Kosako, an advisor to the government on radiation safety, resigned his position in protest of radiation exposure levels for elementary schools that he said were inexcusable. Meanwhile, authorities in Kashiwa City, Chiba Prefecture, have announced that they will have to shut down garbage incineration plants that were being used to burn radioactive materials. The plants discovered incinerated ash to contain as much as 70,800 becquerels of radioactive cesium per kilogram, almost 10 times the national landfill level of 8,000 becquerels per kilogram. The Nembu Clean Center in Kashiwa has already stored 134 tons of incinerated ash and is running out of space to accommodate the radioactive materials. Goshi Hosono, the minister in charge of the nuclear crisis, announced last week that the government is ready to lift evacuation advisories for five towns near the Fukushima plant. The towns, in the so-called emergency evacuation preparedness zone between 20 and 30 kilometers from the plant, are home to 30,000 people and were under a voluntary evacuation order which will now be lifted, allowing residents to return to their homes once they have been decontaminated. Reacting to the decision, Tetsuji Imanaka, a professor of nuclear engineering in Kyoto University, said, The government may be easing restrictions because concern about reactor explosions has diminished. Radiation contamination of the land hasn't decreased so far. The lifting of the evacuation advisory comes even as nuclear experts slammed the government for revealing for the first time last week the results of tests conducted in late March that showed plutonium fallout from the disaster has traveled as far as 45 kilometers northwest of the plant, far beyond the evacuation preparedness zone. Michiaki Furukawa of the Citizens Nuclear Information Center lashed out at the government's tardiness. The results came too late. The government should have conducted the tests much earlier. The tests also revealed strontium, another dangerous radioactive element, as far as 50 miles from the plant. This has been a news update from Global Research TV. For the latest news and information from around the world, please go to globalresearch.ca.
right, we're back here on Corporate Report Radio, and we continue plowing ahead with more information about the various cover-ups that have taken place, not only at Fukushima, but also in the United States, surrounding the radiation concerns that arise not only from Fukushima, but from nuclear reactors in the United States. And anyone who saw my recent eye-opener report on the Mark I boiling water reactor that is still used in multiple sites throughout the United States might be interested uh, to uh, to note that certainly the very same dangers that made the Mark I reactor such a ridiculous concept in so many ways for Fukushima and still continues to threaten humanity as the reactor building number four is still uh, very structurally unsound. And if it collapses, the spent fuel pool, which is storing hundreds of tons of nuclear waste, threatens to really radiate the planet in a way that's almost unthinkable. So we absolutely have to uh, to be uh, concerned about that possibility and to really understand what can be done about that. But on that note, let's turn to another interview that I did last year. It was in October of 2011. I had the chance to talk to Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.com. That's F-A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S.com. If you're not familiar with Arnie, I certainly hope that you do go to Fairwinds and check out his work. He was, he's a longtime uh, veteran of the nuclear energy industry. Uh, he was uh, a whistleblower of his own, trying to, uh, to blow the whistle on various... Uh, bad practices and, and, and things that he had seen in his time. And he continues to do so now in his work at Fairwinds, and he has been one of the, the most insightful and articulate voices about what's really happening at Fukushima and what has been covered up. But in October of last year, I had the chance to talk to Arnie at length, not only about Fukushima, but also about what this entire incident, what types of concerns it raises about what is being covered up, not only in Japan by the Japanese nuclear regulatory agencies, but also in the U.S. by the nuclear regulatory agencies there. So let's listen to Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.com. You know, I, I think that's really important. Uh, in Japan, it seems to me like the uh, the priority of uh, TEPCO was uh, uh, TEPCO first, the, the government of Japan second, and the, and the people of Japan third. Uh, they were on the first several days of the accident, uh, I think I think in the back of senior management's minds, they were still planning on starting these units back up, and and hence the argument over whether or not to put salt water in. I think the plant manager clearly understood that the situation was out of control. He had lost the unit, and he needed to put salt water in. But yet, TEPCO at senior levels was was clearly thinking about restarting that unit up. Same thing happened on Three Mile Island. Uh, I, I studied that, and, and management said, well, you know, in a week or so, we'll get this thing started up again, whereas the plant manager knew how serious it was. Anyway, who's in charge in, in Japan? It has seemed to me for a long time that uh, Tokyo Electric had, had more power at the table than did the Japanese government. Now, perhaps the Japanese government is slightly worse than here in Japan, but, but here in the U.S., but really not a, a, a whole heck of a lot. Um, here in the U.S., we've got the industry trade group, NEI, and when they come to the table, they uh, carry a lot of political weight. The Congress um, has never approved a commissioner who NEI, the nuclear trade group, didn't approve before it got to Congress. So there's a, I don't think the, um, the, the people of Japan should be, uh, uh, feeling as if they're unique, that, um, TEPCO had, a, uh, 
a stranglehold on the government of Japan that didn't happen elsewhere in the world. It, it is happening here in the U.S. and um, and it's a concern. Uh, it it uh, I, and I also believe it happens in France and um, and and also in China. That that's a remarkable fact, and and I wasn't even aware of that. So so there has never been a, a nuclear commissioner who has not been a, a approved beforehand by the the industry itself. I mean, what does that speak to the the relationship between those uh, the industry and the regulators that are supposedly watching over them? Actually, it, it, I shouldn't say never since 1994. So for the last 17 years, there hasn't been a commissioner that hasn't been uh, vetted by the um, uh, by the Nuclear Energy Institute. You know, we had a, a senator here, Pete Domenici, uh, from uh, Arizona or New Mexico, and he's he wrote a book about how he forced the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to be more industry compliant. Um, he met with the uh, head of the uh, nuclear the, com- the, the chairman of the nuclear regulatory commission um, and and um, it was a woman at the time and she said that uh, Shirley Jackson and she said that um, uh, he forced her to speed up licensing because he threatened to cut the budget and uh, in half and uh, and he actually brags about that in this book so this is not something that's um, um, unknown to the public it's actually in in print um, we've also seen it um recently uh, there's a commissioner merrifield who uh, while he was a commissioner his his time on the commission was winding down he went looking for work and he contacted on on his personal office phone the people who he was regulating and he said hey i need a job um after he got a job he made decisions as a commissioner that favored the company he was going to work for. So this is not a, a, a situation unique to Japan. This is a situation that's um, that's global. The, Barry Commoner had a, uh, an expression years and years ago, back in the 60s or early 70s, and he, he used the term a nuclear priesthood. And uh, it has become that, you know, with the, the, the people that run these reactors – um, seem to think that the public has no opinion that's um, reasonable in the um, in the long term decisions about nuclear safety, and when they don't get their way with the regulator, they run over to Congress and, and apply pressure. And the same thing was true at TEPCO. Well, I, I suppose that isn't really surprising for for a public that has long become used to the revolving doors in so many aspects of the government, in, from uh, the, the former Treasury Secretary being Goldman Sachs and and all sorts of revolving doors, Monsanto and other such uh, things. But it's uh, very it particularly worrying when it's dealing with something as sensitive as nuclear safety, um, and that raises the question, I guess, the twin questions of how this has come to pass in the first place, and then what can actually be done about this uh, relationship. Um, wow. <laughs> I think there's a book there. <laughs> the, uh, um, if you, if you go back to how it began, you know, clearly this all started because of the weapons program. And, uh, we had, um, a technology in place, diffuse gaseous diffusion for enrichment that, um, that, that had other applications. So it went into the nuclear Navy and then from the nuclear Navy, it went into, uh, commercial power plants. There were other decisions that could have been made back in the 1950s and 1960s 
that might have resulted in a safer nuclear power plant. Um, but it wouldn't have been a uranium-based, enriched uranium plant like, like we have in Japan or that we have in the United States. But the decision to go with the type of plant we have was driven because to build our weapons, we needed the gaseous diffusion enrichment plants. Um, so we are where we are. The, um, the, the plants are, um, uh, the, the plants are good. This issue of decay heat, when the uranium atom splits, these pieces remain highly radioactive. That issue um, would not have been as significant had the industry done other alternatives years ago. Um, now, I think to answer your question succinctly, it boils down to money. Um, Wall Street in the U.S. is not funding new nukes because they're way too expensive and we're relying on, uh, uh, you know, taxpayer guarantees. And, and an event like Fukushima pushes up that threshold even higher. Um, I, I think um, it's not about being pro-nuke or anti-nuke. It's about does the money make sense? And when you properly look at the risks and the, um, the, the financial risks, uh, I think that more and more boards, boards of directors, are going to make the decision that, that there's got to be another alternative out there rather than to build a new nuclear plant. Well, I think you're right. It's certainly going to become an economic decision, and uh, we've seen signs of that already. For example, uh, Sellafield in Britain is apparently mm-hmm. uh, stopping its MOX production because the uh, Jap- Japanese uh, uh, demand just isn't going to be there in, in the wake of Fukushima. How else do you think uh, Fukushima is going to play out in the near term and then in the long term? I mean, do you think there is room left for a nuclear industry, uh, or will it uh, will it wither away as the, uh, the economic economics of it makes it basically unfeasible? Um, I, I, I hope that the Japanese um, uh, physicians uh, accurately measure and monitor and report the health effects that will occur after Fukushima. Um, I, I firmly believe that there will be, a, a, over the next 20 years, a million additional cancers in Japan as a result of the Fukushima incident. Now, whether or not that gets properly recorded is is my personally my biggest concern um, because I think government pressures will want to downplay that and industry pressures will want to downplay that. We saw that at Three Mile Island. We saw that at Chernobyl. The difference here is that we do have the internet now, which we didn't have you know thirty years ago when those accidents occur. So. Uh, I think as that information gets out, over the next five years, there would be an increase in thyroid and lung cancers, and out at about 10 years, you begin to see the organ cancers. Um, as that information gets out, um, I believe that that will factor into decisions on new nukes on a um, on an emotional level. Um, but the industry has already acknowledged in trade magazines that they're expecting a 10 to 20% increase in cost. Now, uh, here in the States, uh, um, an old nuke, that one that's been running now for uh, years, has at most cost a billion dollars, and for my Yankee, cost a couple hundred million dollars. And now that same nuclear plant is costing $20 billion. So the capital cost is somewhere between 10 to to 50 times higher than the cost that we were used to for nuclear power. So the argument that nuclear power is cheap 
may have hold, held true for these 440 plants that are operating, but it doesn't hold true for the um, for the new plants. Then when something costs 20 billion and um, and when it breaks, it breaks for good. It does. It's not like not like a coal plant. And when a coal plant breaks, it it may kill one or two workers, and in three weeks you've got it running again. When a nuclear plant breaks, it's down for forever. So the the, the risk of a um, of, of an accident are significant, and the capital cost is enormous. When that happens, it seems to me that um, I think boards of directors are going to look for alternatives to that gen- that way to generate power. Well, as you mentioned before, the uh, the costs of alternative sources of energy are decreasing even as the nuclear costs are increasing, and uh, and th- it is interesting to watch how this will play out. What do you think in the long term alternative sources of en- energy might be that could potentially replace nuclear power? Well, I think we're going to see distributed generation. Um, back in the 20th century, seems so far away, the, the only way to really generate electricity was with central station power. So we had larger and larger central station powers connected by transmission lines. The um, The computers allowed us to go with um, distributed generation and smart grids. Um, for, for instance, if you have... Um, if you have a uh, wind and you have a country as large as Japan, the wind may not be blowing in one area, but it's blowing somewhere else. And years ago, back when nuclear plants were made, there was no vehicle to transfer that power easily. But computers have allowed us to have a smart grid so that we can um, transfer power north to south or or east to west much easier. The the other piece of that is that we have... um, means of generating power now that that are much smaller and localized. Now, it can be solar on a house or, or individual windmills, but the other possibility is um, is gas in something called a bloom box. Um, and that's a, um, um, that's a device no bigger than a pickup truck, and it generates about a megawatt. And it can be placed in your neighborhood. But so that's cool that, that it's that it's uh, there, there are no transmission losses, and transmission losses account for about ten percent of all power. So that's that's neat that it's right next to the load. But the other thing is that it's eighty percent efficient, whereas that nuclear plant is thirty percent efficient. So um, so the, the the net result is for less impact on the environment, you're creating two to three times more power. Uh, so I think that uh, we're going to see distributed generation with renewables and, and um, the bloom boxes are driven by, by gas um, and less of the central station power plants as the, as the century moves on. You know, I, I've used the analogy before. Um, we seem to be fighting the last war with um, with these large central station power plants. It reminds me a lot of the French when they built the Maginot Line after World War One. That was a great idea to prevent World War One from happening, but it didn't stop World War Two. And and the same thing holds with these large um, generating plants. Um, technology is, has changed, and so has cost. And the net effect is, I think, with distributed generation and with smart grids, we'll be able to move that power or, uh, around so that um, uh, we'll, we'll be able to do without central station power by the end of the century. 
that that is a very hopeful thing and something that we have to be i think aiming at but as you pointed out this is about economics and there is a, a nuclear priesthood that is developed obviously there will be a great deal of uh, of uh, resistance to these these types of changes you're absolutely right uh, the the i think the difference after fukushima is that the while, while the priesthood may want nuclear power um wall street and main street do not now i don't think it matters if main street wanted it if if wall street wanted it it would happen but but we're seeing within the investment community a lot of trepidation here about whether or not to um to, to fund an investment like this if they can throw it onto the backs of the um uh, of the consumer that's one thing but if they have to bear the cost themselves that's another and i think in japan that same thing's happening you know that it seems to me like the gov- the government of japan does not want to admit that this problem is going to cost um a quarter of a trillion dollars us so we're talking a <laughs> hundred times that in yen um and uh, in order to do that they'll it will it will cause tepco to be um to be bankrupt and i don't think anybody's willing to um to take that step and until the government of japan recognizes the magnitude of this and the investment community realizes that the you know an enormous utility is going to be brought to its knees we're going to have these haphazard um um sporadic attempts to um to mitigate the radiation as opposed to a coordinated plan you can trust the government they just want you for their gains Nothing to hide, then you have nothing to fear, say the proponents and shills of the encroaching police state as they try to force feed the various police state gadgetry down our throats. Oh, you don't mind the NSA listening in on everything that you say, do, type, or think because, well, they're, they're a nice, wholesome agency and they're just looking out for those dastardly terrorist boogeymen who are hiding under every rock. Well, if that standard is supposed to apply to you and me, then why should it not apply to the governments and the uh, the agencies and the companies that deign to be playing with the elemental forces of the universe itself? Of course, we're referring to the nuclear power industry, which has been built on the precipice of the the uh, nuclear weapons industry and has uh, unfortunately really, as Fukushima shows, endangered and imperiled vast swaths of the globe because of the reckless uh, things that have been done in the name of pursuing this nuclear power uh, agenda. And tonight we've been looking at some of the aspects of the Fukushima cover-ups. Of course, this is still ongoing, so I will continue pressing ahead on CorbettReport.com with more on this situation. But let me just use the final moments of tonight's broadcast to tell you about next week and what we have lined up for Corbett Report Radio. It's going to be an actually a totally jam-packed week next week, so I certainly hope you will be joining us here on Republic Broadcasting for it. On Monday night, we're going to be talking to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com. I certainly hope if you haven't checked out that site that you will do so uh, over the weekend so that you can get caught up to speed on the excellent website and the excellent detailed coverage that Eric goes into in his podcast, which is also freely available there at StopImperialism.com. So we're going to be getting into Syria and Iran and Pakistan and Russia and China and 
all of the geopolitics that's uh, spinning around and really threatening so much of the globe at the moment. Then on Tuesday night, we have John Rappaport of New- No More Fra- Fake News lined up for you. That's nomorefakenews.com. Uh, for those of you who missed my interview with John Rappaport last uh, last week on CorbettReport.com, I suggest you check it out. A very, very interesting conversation about bioethics and uh, the real agenda behind that. So we're going to be breaking uh, down some more about uh, his work that he's done. He's done so such a wide range of work. I'm sure we'll be exploring many topics. So once again, please check out nomorefakenews.com for more on that. On Wednesday night, we're going to be talking to Walter Burian of Kaffir1.com. That's C-A-F-R-1.com. Walter Burian, the uh, the real pioneer of the research into the comprehensive annual fi- financial reports by which uh, really trillions are being smuggled off the books, so to speak, and kept from the public as they continue to claim that all of these cities and universities and all of these institutions are just bankrupt. Meanwhile, they have a second set of books where they're hiding all their wealth. Thursday night is going to be a very special edition of the broadcast. It is Thursday night, so in the second half, we'll be talking to James Heaven Pilato of foodworldorder.com as usual. In the first half, instead of open phones and headlines, as usual, we'll be actually talking to James Lane and Holland van den Neuenhoff, the, uh, the men behind the Noble Lie OKC documentary, because it will be the anniversary of the OKC bombing. So we will be talking about that and some of the things that will be going on that day. So I hope you can join us for that. Uh, that's going to be a very interesting broadcast. And then, of course, Friday will be Friday Night Highlights, as usual. So once again, a jam-packed transmission next week. I hope you'll join us for that. In the meantime, I hope you take uh, care of yourselves over the weekend. And uh, and once again, I'll be looking forward to talking to you next Monday. So until then, take care. 